Hello there, and welcome to Music Speaks. This podcast dedicates itself to how music impacts people's lives. For this show, we usually have two co-hosts. My name, of course, is Sean McCurtis, and my friend, Hunter Sagona. Hunter and I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. We pride ourselves on building upon our musical knowledge. With our featured guests, jamming to incredible music, talking about a wide variety of artists and composers and everything in between. The quote of the day has to refer to the composer of the day, and that is to play a wrong note is insignificant. To play without passion is inexcusable. Ludwig von Beethoven. And today we have my friend Val filling in for my friend Hunter. And Val, take it away whenever you're ready. Okay, Beethoven's Second Symphony was mostly written during Beethoven's stay at Heiligenstadt in 1802, at a time when his deafness was becoming more pronounced and he began to realize that it might be incurable. The work was premiered in the Theater an der Wein in Vienna, April 5th of 1803, and was conducted by the composer. During the same concert, the Third Piano Concerto and the oratorio Christ on the Mount of Olives was also debuted. It is one of the last works of Beethoven's early period. Beethoven wrote the second symphony without a standard minuet. Instead, a scherzo took its place, giving the composition even greater scope and energy. The scherzo and the finale are filled with Beethovenian music jokes, which shocked the sensibilities of many contemporary critics. One Viennese critic for Zitwang für die Elegante Welt, newspaper for the elegant world, famously wrote the symphony of the symphony that it was a hideous, hideously writhing wounded dragon that refused to die, which is quite a statement to make about something. <laughs> That's kind of a lot. Wow. <laughs> it is unbelievably perfect in this manner of, of craziness in this Beethoven world. Are you ready to talk about some Beethoven too? I am ready to talk about Beethoven 2. I okay. love Beethoven 2. Beethoven 2 is is quite the animal mm-hmm. unto itself. A lot different than one in a lot of different ways. Um, and and here, here's what I'll tell you, which, which is really interesting about 2, is like you were saying in that little brief little explanation from that little Wikipedia article that I kind of pieced together, mm-hmm. um, which was that... Like, like you said, like Beethoven was figuring out how the deafness was starting to affect him. And we kind of see that a little bit here in this first movement, the way the dichotomy and the, and the, and almost the decay of the first movement going from the exposition into the um, development section. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, for sure. I think that this just general comments, I guess, about the whole thing is I think that the symphony is, uh, more romantic by leaps and bounds than the first one was and i think that has a lot to do with the time period in which it was written you know he had just written this whole testament to his brother about how um he's implying that he's suicidal and all of these things over everything that he's dealing with but the only reason that he's not ending his life is because he has so much to say in his music and then the second symphony premieres now i i believe that he started writing it before all of that but he certainly finished it after and i think that you could kind of tell in certain places um i think this kind of especially the fourth movement this is really what takes us into the romantic period of his writing right Right, yeah. Um, you know what, what's also interesting, too, is the way that um, I think something that I read when I was, was working on this piece was the use of musical jokes that yes, he had for sure. in his music. Um, and I wanted to talk about that first because we're going to talk about the first movement, which is begins with the introduction of a adagio molto and, yep. uh, and then digresses into a allegro vivace. Um, I should mention that the beginning of the piece uh, starts in 3-4, felt out in 6, unfortunately, like our like our last little piece of, uh, of fun there. Um, <laughs> and, and I'll say this right away. Um, there is a bit of brilliance to that sound, um, but there's also this really butter-like quality to the beginning of these upper aria-sounding pieces in my head. Like, when we listen to, like, these introductions... That kind of reminds me of how how earlier symphonies would start. Like they would have the beginning section and then the opening section. You know what I mean? 
I do, and I'm I'm positive. I I must not be the first one to think this, but I was thinking that this could intro could probably be the slow movement in some Haydn symphony. Right. You know, this is very reminiscent of Haydn and the classical roots, and right. I I think it's very cool. It's a very long introduction, and is then it? yeah, yeah, it's like very long, yeah. and then the rest of the movement. I mean, it's quoted a bit, of course, in the end and the recap and stuff, but right. it's just kind of different. It takes a turn. Yeah. And then he transitions into mm. the Allegro section so seamlessly, you almost don't even notice. It's very interesting. It feels nice, too. Like, there's just, there's so much happening. But some of my favorite writing that he does happens to be in the string section, especially at the latter end of the of the first page, where he has all those trills. Followed by triplets. Oh um, yeah. Yep. I'm like that. That sounds like this. Like, and I and I wrote in a way like I said this this over the top musical aria in the strings, you know. Oh yeah, and for almost, sure. Almost to that quote that you said to the the soprano about the ninth movement, like why so high? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> what do you mean it's so high? I mean, <laughs> I love yeah. That. Right. And, and this is where he's got a bunch of diminished stuff going on. He's really building quite a lot of tension because this whole intro has a form in and of itself. Like this is where the the stuff with the trills and the strings that you just said, he's kind of developing into the second theme. Right. You, right. you could say, you know, right. of this yeah. intro. Yeah. I don't know. I just think it's very it's very cool. It's you know, what's also interesting, too, is how he translates D major into a section into B flat major. Yeah. Too, you know? Mm -hmm. And and that to me is like the kicker. I I I kind of want to see how he does it. And you know what's really interesting about it is he kind of ends right the measure before that, he kind of ends on like an A major sound with like a sort of a um like a one six with like the C sharp on the bottom. And then what he does, I believe, is then he, he sort of does like a like a like a chromatic modulation to the key of B flat major, which is actually right. really interesting because he goes he see he uses the the concert D as the third note, but then uh, in a way he then which is interesting he's you get this this unexpected color too by the way, and then this very long slurred. Uh, crazily 30 second notes through the strings, but the strings are playing very slow in that, in that, right. in that, in that, in that smooth six, you know? Yeah. I think that's a theme for a lot of the piece is he sets up to go to five a lot. Mm -hmm. He's constantly taking you to the dominant and then he just sort of never arrives. He either goes to something else or he just dances around it and stays in the home key or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He, you know what I also noticed in this section? He really likes the Neapolitan second a lot, like that raised sound. It's yes. really creepy, too. Um, and like you said, like this opening section is really long and very overdramatic. So in a way, I feel like Beethoven will probably never admit this, but it just feels like this very long-lasting joke that Beethoven in his head is like, yeah, you know what? I'm I'm just gonna let this be like what people think the like the whole piece is gonna be like, but then we get to the melody and in, in the first section, and it's nothing like like that at all. Yeah, I can see that, and then the melody itself is tongue in cheek in its own way too, you know. But yeah, I could definitely see that. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's also interesting too because um, the melody of the Allegro Vivace is is nothing like the introduction at all. You know, no, it's, it's not. And and yet it seems to come out of nowhere, you know? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's such a seamless transition that mm. part of you, if you're listening to it, you're not following along with the score or anything. You're just kind of listening. And right. all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're in the, the exposition now. And you just don't know how you got there. Right. And I feel like in a way, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but those 30 second notes really do set up those uh, those eighth notes in, in the fast um, common time, you know? Yeah, I would say so. Yep, I think so. Yeah. 
Um, in, a, in a way, he kind of returns to this, this coy sound. Um, and I think what's so funny about it is, again, and maybe there are more multiple, like, overarching, smaller musical jokes that he puts in. But, like, one of my favorite things, and Hunter and I talked about this a lot when we talked about Bach, which was like the use of scales and, and how seamless things sound, like especially within mm -hmm. a couple of the introduction section of this Allegro uh, Vivace, I find that when we go through all this really fast material, it, it's, it's, it, it's, 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 it's so seamless, you know, and it, and it feels so, um, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel tight. It feels so relaxed. And I think we might've talked about this maybe a bit last time about how like, the, the overarching scope of when you work with younger musicians and when you play with them, your goal is to not to get them to play the notes, but to get them to, to feel the pulse of the piece, you know, yeah. in, in, in a way like an, an early Beethoven is really good in that where you can, you can get the, like, the, like the center pulse, you know, rather than like a, like rather than like individual note parts, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I yeah. agree with you. I think that's a really good observation. I found it funny that um, it has a little bit to do with it, but one thing I couldn't help but notice, even when we were doing the first symphony last week, up until this point, Beethoven's written many, many progressive for the time piano sonatas. And mm. it's really funny to me that his symphonies kind of started classical and took a minute to catch up because he pretty his piano sonatas even now sound kind of like symphony number no. five six seven mm -hmm. that kind of thing it seems like his symphonies are a little behind the progression and yeah. i guess i guess it could be you know he's much more comfortable he was a pianist himself he's much more comfortable with that but it's just funny to me you know what's interesting about that too is i think you're right in that these trying to catch up i'm i'm sort of doing a little bit of, of work on a piece um in a uh in a, in, a, in a baroque setting but the composer writes music as if they're from the renaissance and so a lot of that influence that i find is that the composer is relying on a lot of that renaissance form harmony compositional techniques from the renaissance but putting it into baroque settings so that we're seeing kind of like the clash between the two. So I think you're right. I think something that you mentioned earlier about Beethoven was that, yes, he was like, like we were saying, like this is kind of like the end of his second, of his first period of right. his writing. Yes. Um, we talk a little bit about that and the development of that and what that meant for the early romantic. I think you're absolutely right in that, I think like like a like a like a Chopin, again, a little bit further ahead from Beethoven, um, his orchestral writing not as strong as his piano writing, but right. Beethoven's piano writing was probably especially more developed and probably a little more romantic than most classical players might find. Maybe some of his earlier works could be, but we could find that because um, Beethoven's writing might not affect the way that he's writing compositionally for piano. So in a sure. way, I feel like when we listen to something like this and then we transition from two to three, and that'll be a really interesting discussion to see how we go from two to three, because two to three is kind of like that legendary leap because a lot of scholars and critics argue that three was his best work. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and defined the early romantic you know, era of writing, because that starts his second period. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, no, you're correct. Yeah, three three definitively starts his second period. So I think, th I think two, the second period begins in the early, early romantic echelon. So we find, we find tropes of classical music, but we also find tropes of um, romantic music, and we find chromaticism, we find, like, developmental form, you know, and we yeah. find all this really great stuff. But I think <clears throat> Beethoven at the time, not that he was giving anyone specific credit for really anything. I think what you're making a really great point of is like, where does this lie in Beethoven's brain in regard to classical or romantic? Cause like we do find like, especially in that introduction, a lot of the introduction material for me 
doesn't sound classical. It sounds more romantic. When we get to the Allegro uh, Combrio, I should I should mention it's not Allegro Vivace, but Allegro Combrio mm-hmm. is um, that it is more classical, classically trained. And so maybe that's where my brain is like, okay, so maybe that's the musical joke, which is like his like switch between like, oh, this is really good, but now I have to go back to the classical form of the of the quote unquote symphony, you know, or like the outdated version of what a symphony is, you know. Right, right. And I, I like everything you said, and I, I agree with you. I looked at this, well, this symphony, but in particular, this first movement as mm. traditionally classical, meaning you've got sonata form and you you check all your classical music boxes. Right. But right. Um, there's romantic energy, mm, mm. right? So he he checks all the boxes he needs to, kind of like in the first symphony as well, but he has way more romantic energy in this one. And this one is way more um, who he is going to be in the future rather than his training. I think the second movement is more like that in a way. Yeah, for sure. That too. Yeah, that too. And that, and that, and that slow transition from classical to romantic that we're seeing. Yep. And maybe we'll hopefully define more of that as we go along, you know, and in some of our, in some of our discussions, but I want to ask you, um, there are some really great um, melodies in this, in this movement, especially for me. And I think you might've pointed it out is for me, my favorite section of the first movement is the secondary melody. Okay. Um, uh, Let me see if I can find it. The second theme, that, that, that whole march thing, right? The second theme? Yeah, that to me sounds more Beethoven than the beginning of the Allegro Comprio. Yeah, for sure. It did to me too. So I decided to do a little research. And um, it turns out at the time he was just really into marches. He was writing a couple for piano as well. And so, which is really, I didn't know that. Um, which is kind of cool. And then this part sounds really tongue-in-cheek. And this reminded me a little bit of Mozart, but, like, specifically Marriage of Figaro kind of Mozart. Mm. That kind of funny Mozart, you know? But I like this melody a lot, too. I agree with you. Right. I, I think it's too... I think it's a... How do I describe it? It is a playful Beethoven Yes. that we are accustomed to hearing like <clears throat> i think you said it in a, in a comment that maybe you want to get to which is the pastoral symphony yeah well that was more um for movement too that that really reminded me of the pastoral symphony yeah yeah in a way it, it has this sort of playful regard to it and i think what i was trying to get to <clears throat> with the discussion of the digression of of beethoven's sadness and and the loss of um his hearing is, I actually think the development is way more depressing mm-hmm. than the exposition. Oh, yeah. I, w- I would say so, too. Yeah. And let me just explain to you why. Because just because of the shapes and the key changes, you know, and the, and the amount of um, accidentals that he has in... Um, and the amount of chromaticism that we find in this. <clears throat> yeah, it's a it's lot of crunchy of, chords and things that he's doing it here. Is. Yeah, and I, I find that kind of be interesting too, like that development of crunchiness. In we kind of find that I guess we could find some of it in Heine, but not really. You know, like it really makes a trademark in Beethoven's music, and I feel like some of those dissonant progressions really kind of follows him through his symphonic works. Yes, uh, most definitely. Yeah, most definitely. And I, I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm a performer. You're a performer, too. Maybe you um, you understand. Everything for me comes back to, like, when I'm learning a new piece or something, it comes back to what is the context, what was going on right. with them. And I think looking up the context for Beethoven and understanding what was going on with him, all of that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Right. And I think where some of those instances where I mentioned like the digression is is more frantic nature. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it feels like he's trying to take care of a situation, but he just can't like learn how to deal with it. <clears throat> right. But, but at the same time, he's determined and he kind of is not taking no for an answer. He's he's going to deal with it right, too, you right. know. 
And I yeah. think that shows. It's a, it's a little bit scary too. And honestly, mm-hmm. um, and how like the melody kind of slowly kind of creeps back. Um, <clears throat> and I, I actually find that the, 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 the development takes a really long time to digress. And then finally, when we return to the, to the melody, it's almost in a sneaky way where um, now the, the viol- violas and cellos take over the melody. Bum, right. And then in a way, I feel like um, once those extra melodies come back, bum, bum, ba-dum, and then in a way i feel like he then takes that secondary melody and then expands it with more instrumentation and just kind of blasts it in your face you know yes uh-huh in, in a very aggressive way too um so i really like that what, what, what were you gonna say yeah, no, I would say so. You were talking before about scary. And, and one thing that I found was when everything just drops out and he has only the strings doing that first theme. It's kind of right before the codetta. Right. Where he has just a, a double piano very quietly. And it's only the strings. That I think mm-hmm. is a, a very telling moment in this movement. Right, yeah. And that could also be a really good transition too. You know what I mean? Yes, definitely. Right, to sort of transition between material. And I also wrote that the um, the coda section is actually also very long. It is quite long, yeah. He, he's got, like, the beginning and the end that's just very long here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know why. I mean, like, maybe he's also making a musical joke of, like, yes, I could keep going and doing this forever and ever and ever. You can never, like, never get tired of it. But, like, it, it just <clears throat> it just finds a way to keep going and keep going. And yeah. and and uses that like what you said that transition though. Yeah. I like how I like also like how the the horns really come out in this section. Boom, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. like really loud. And I think that is also a very marked characteristic of Beethoven, which is like, you know, he, we 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 all know the stories of him banging on the piano and trying to hear the vibrations of the of the keys, you know yep um but like that that to me is like you know what i really want to just hear what the orchestra sounds like you know yeah well it's funny because i noticed in uh this movement and i well actually i think i might notice it in movement too but it applies all over the symphony is that the sections are a lot more independent. So like even we'll say symphony number one, but even looking into the classical period, but even with his first symphony, right? It's kind of like winds and strings. Mm. And those are two sections or sometimes it's low strings and low winds and also high strings and high winds. But a, a lot of, there are very distinct groups and here he just breaks it up a lot more here, like it's it's woodwinds, brass, for instance, uh, strings, and then low strings, and he just really creates a lot more opportunities that way for every section. Yeah, I really admire that about Beethoven too, which is like he is starting to break out of that mold of mm-hmm. one, two, three. Yes, one, two, three. You know, like they can all complement each other in a way. Yes. And when we talked about a little bit of Tchaikovsky in some of our Tchaikovsky pods, um, we talked about like the relationship of the instruments to instruments and, and what that meant to the composer himself. Like I feel like again, Beethoven probably didn't like brass, but he I think the one thing he probably <laughs> liked about brass was that they could play really loud, unlike a string instrument, who might have its who who might have its limited range. But yep. like the punctuation is there, and I think that's probably what what he was really going for, you know. So, I find that to be one of the more prominent things. Um, I wanted to ask you a question because I find this really to be interesting. I made a note of it in my notes, uh, which is um, the feeling of excitable nature versus dealing with tragedy and coping with that. And I feel like this movement does that a lot. 
like there's there's all this tumultuous nature in the development section, but there's also all this excitement. Um, and we find that in a way, uh, very similar to a lot of compositional styles landing in the romantic, the hero's journey, as they would say, you know? Yeah, for sure. So I'm just curious, um, not to put so much weight on you, but like, what is your determination of the character of this first movement? Well, you know, it's like I said, I really think it's reflective. I, I think this is incredibly transparent of him. And he is just, Beethoven to me seems incapable of writing just a piece. That doesn't mean anything. I think he's got to base it off of something. And I think this is what he was, he was basing it off of his hearing loss and everything. And when you're going through something like that, that's life-changing, he's probably feeling incredibly mortal. He's probably feeling all of these really intense things. And as a, a lot of people know, you know, when we're in a, a darker period, it has its ups and downs and it goes from very dark, but then sometimes it's funny because sometimes you just have to laugh at things and then it's really dark again and you're, you're struggling and then, well, maybe there's some hope and then it's really dark again. And I think that's kind of a good way to describe what's going on here. And it's probably what was going on in his own head too. And I think the symphony is a little bit all over the place um, like that emotionally simply because he was you know right yeah and i'm so glad that you touched upon that because i wrote a paper about his sixth symphony and how um beethoven's work is programmatic and yet Mm -hmm. he kept denying that it wasn't and yet it is you know (laughs) because he had to follow those societal norms of feeling like this is a symphony blah 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 this is this is a, cl- a strictly classical piece of music that I'm going to send you this way. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, yeah, I do. So, yeah, so so in a way for me that was like the the voice of like yes, it is. However, not really so much because he like like I think what you like maybe what I said early like experience out of tragedy comes great reckoning or great understanding of material and I think I think we still have a lot of music to get through tonight, but in a way, like the first movement in a way depicts that relationship of the, of the evil versus good, you know, and, and where that, that haunts us, you know? Yeah, I think so. So I'm so excited to talk about the second movement because it is one of the more beautiful pieces of music that Beethoven wrote for, for orchestra uh the second movement being the larghetto which is in three eight and is felt in a slow three pulsed time uh val we switch to the key of a major i find that to be really great it's a very um it's not it's a very bright key but he does it in a very delicate way, which I think fits very well for this piece. I think he does a really nice job with the register, especially within the uh, within the strings. Yeah, I agree. I think he does. And the woodwinds too, but I, I agree with what you're saying. I think it's kind of funny that this is the only movement in the whole symphony that centers around the dominant, you know, the centers around yeah. A major. Right, yeah. It's, it's, it's strange, too. Like you said, like you maybe expect three to be that way, but... Right, like of of all the ones, the deep and dark, but you know, it's not it's not that it's always like dark, but the slow movement and the reflective yeah. and pensive movement is in the bright key. It is right. kind of funny. <laughs> the the second movements for him are usually his variation movements. Mm-hmm. Um, I found that to be really interesting, in that the material is pretty straightforward. Um, there's a lot of A sections. A couple of B sections, but mainly the, the the A section is really prevalent and very helpful. Um, yeah. You must be really happy. Uh, Beethoven wrote really well for A clarinet. Um, yeah, he really did. Clarinet. It cracks me up. It's like he learned how to write clarinet for clarinet overnight because the first symphony, oh, there's boy. not really a special clarinet part it's just kind of (laughs) it it just kind of is used as a coloring voice i mean it's a well-written 
part, but it's really used to to color the sound of the whole ensemble. It's not featured. And it, it cracks me up that he kind of learned how to feature it overnight in the symphony. And then he writes a lot of really famous excerpts for us in the next symphony. And so he either he was holding out and just kind of didn't do it, or he really did just learn overnight. Right. I love that because we talked about last time with one that he wrote one for C clarinet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, let me let me ask you this quick question: Like, do you prefer two because it's written for A clarinet? Do or, I? Pref- no, I mean, I think I think that's. I mean, hopefully, yeah, yep, yeah, that was right. Okay. Um, do you prefer this piece because it's written? In, yeah. Oh, I see. Well, you know, from a logistical standpoint, it is easier because I don't have to think as hard. Like, I don't have to think about transposing. Um, I think it is interesting, though, that he chose a clarinet for this piece and then the others are in B flat. Uh, The A clarinet is, you know, it's usually has to do with a key that it's in, but the A clarinet, the sound is quite a bit darker. And so I don't know if he knew that I could see him being that particular, but I, I don't know if he knew that or, or didn't. Um, but yeah, it is interesting to me, but I guess I would prefer playing the ones where I don't have to do the extra work, I suppose. <laughs> I, I concur. I concur. <laughs> um, I also like that, um, in this movement, uh, it has this, this stark contrast between this I mean, the, between the, the the first movement where it kind of like plays between the two characters, um, and I, I feel like this one, and for me, is is just it, it's it's almost like a Beethovenian lullaby. You know what I mean? Like it 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 kind of softly puts you to sleep, but also has those random Haydn like loud movements that are yeah. like, oh my god, trumpets. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are trumpets. That's how it always goes, isn't it? You're falling asleep, and then there, are tru- <laughs> there come the trumpets. <laughs> yeah. And then what? I, what I find so funny about it is that the trumpet part is it's just so random, and you have to count so many measures to come in too. Mm-hmm. I find that to be pretty funny because you have to like really wait for those sections to come in too, especially at the end of this movement too. Like it's like really loud. Okay, then it's. <laughs> So that to me, again, like you said, a character piece, but takes on this beautiful, uh, I like this word, lugubrious, like elegant feeling of the of this, like, um, not again, like maybe I don't really know why I, I pair this word with some of Beethoven's music, but coy a little bit again. Yeah, there there are parts of this that are certainly coy, and there's not just one mood. I liked that word. The word I thought I thought of was ethereal, especially in the Mm, beginning. But there's ethereal settings. You know, a lot of his writing is quite a bit coy, especially in the middle of this movement. I also thought ominous a few times. So there are a different, a few different moods. I think here too. Right. Yeah. I also want to ask you this too. Um, The great sections of clarinet. Um, great magi- great register for the clarinet, you think? I think, yeah, I do think it's a good register for the clarinet. I think that I, I really find it funny. He, he just kind of learned how to write for clarinet overnight because it still blends in, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it still blends in. He, yeah. He's still using it as a color, but also there are these back and forths with like the woodwind melody and the strings are doing a counter melody and, the, and then the clarinets and the flutes are calling responses sometimes and um he just really writes it in a flattering register that does both it lets it shine and it also lets it blend right yeah there's just also so much of this slow waltz happening too Mm -hmm. And 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 it feels like the development of the waltz over time is just so slow but it 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 builds in the right places you know like it it just kind of like dissolves and then resolves and then kind of it's almost like a very slow tide you know what i mean yeah i yeah i agree with that what also i want to say about this movement is that uh i find that the one instrument that does really shine brightly in this movement is the clarinet um 
And a lot of the writing for the clarinet is just, it's just one of the things that we, we, we talked about and, and maybe we're talking about way too much, but I, I think that the, that Beethoven really found ways to just utilize its timbre, you know? Yeah, for sure. And especially, like I said, I don't know if he did this on purpose. He seems like the controlling type who, who would, but this is very distinctly written for clarinet and a, and it's only a half step difference, but that half step makes a difference. You know, it's quite a bit darker of a sound. That's why Mozart used it all the time with his, um, well, he used like basset horns, basset clarinets, that kind of thing. But basically the lower the instrument is, the darker the sound it's get, it gets out. And I think that it's, whether it was intentional or not, um, for this particular symphony, it's incredibly appropriate. And interesting to me that from three onward, uh, we tend to play B flat. So, which is, which is brighter. So, um, yeah, it's just, that's very interesting to me too. It's an appropriate instrument for the kind of timbre he's going for. Right, right. And if we can kind of go back to the ending again, mm -hmm. the coda is actually really interesting because he re-entries the melody and then, and then finds a way to sort of like punctuate the, the, the cadence and then find ways to sort of get out of it, which is actually really interesting because he, what he does is he plays the but my favorite part has to be the interjecting flute. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. And then the little bit of the yeah, and it's funny because all of that is very, you know, typical in his writing, mm -hmm. um, but right. not yet. This is kind of the first time that he's right. really done that. Right, yeah. And it, and it feels like it just, it kind of goes on forever. Um, yeah. Again, with those really long codas, but he does a really great job of just, like I said, with the tides and the slow movement and the use of different rhythms and triplets. And yep. variations of the background figures versus the leading figures, um, quite homophonic, but overall, like you can really follow the line really well. And he really uses other instruments in a way to just kind of balance out the melody versus the uh, the texture, you know. Yeah, I I exactly agree with you. And it's kind of funny because I've always really loved this movement. It's always been one of my favorite slow movements. And then in preparing for this podcast and doing research and, and all that stuff, um, I come to figure out that it's a lot of people's favorite slow movement, you know, which is, which is kind of funny to me. It's just a really beautiful movement. And I think a lot of people see it that way, which is nice. Yeah, I know. I think that works too. And there is a lot of... Uh, what I really think is especially really helpful in these slower movements is I think you mentioned this in your notes, which is the elaboration of the use of woodwinds in yeah. the section too, right? Yep, for sure. For sure. It's yeah, and that's kind of this is about where I noticed it. You know, what I was saying when we were talking about the first movement, it's not just, you know, a string section and a wind section anymore. Both of those are being broken up into smaller and smaller groups and everything is really being utilized to its potential in the orchestra. And so it makes it sound really cool. Yeah. Well, Val, we're going to take a break. All right. And sounds good. We're talking about some Beethoven. But before we take a break, uh, we have our break, which is sponsored by our friends at Anchor. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please go to anchor.com. And you can also search Music Speaks Podcast on multiple listening platforms, such as Apple Music, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, and many, many more. We will be right back, but do not go anywhere. More Beethoven 2 is on its way. All right, and we are back, and Val and I talked about this last time, which was the development of the scherzo, and here is one right here, so very exciting. Um, I, like I mentioned last time, am a huge fan of Beethoven third movements, just because of how playful and interspersed they are and how like compositionally he's able to do so much in so little time. Um, there's just, there's so much going on. 
and yet he's not even doing that much, but it's so cool. Um, I'll throw it over to you, Val. What do you think? Yeah, we have a scherzo here. Um, and I think, yeah, it's very short. It's very playful. It's very fun. There are moments of it that are extremely childlike, but what's interesting is that he starts <laughs> yeah. playing around with, you know, he starts playing around with minor keys. And so it's childlike, yeah. but there's this underlying... I can't really find the word. I... I wrote like it has a little bit of passion underneath it. Tension is not really the right word, but there's a little bit of mischief or something underneath Mm. there when he starts playing around with the keys. So it's, I think, a much deeper thing that's disguised as a happy, fun, skippy child, you know, having a good day, that kind of thing. Right, yeah. There isn't that much character development into it, but compositionally what I find so interesting is... I find that, <clears throat> especially for me, like his third movements are like really great pictures of art. Like it's just they're kind of like all over the place, but yet it's so cool. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of explain what I'm talking about, which is the use of um, singular voices versus loud voices. Yeah. So he really utilizes that a lot in the beginning. And the balance, I think what he really wants to hammer home in this section is the, the, the dynamic versus loud versus soft. Um, the piece itself um, is in 3-4, but felt in a pulse of 1. Um, uh, it has this very nice... And like you said, uh, Val, which is like the use of swinging, you know, like... It's like you're skipping off to school or something like that. Pretty much, very, yeah. Dr- very dramatic fashion. Um, um, the melody. Yeah, you're, you're skipping off to school, but you have like a math test or something. So <laughs> yeah, you're kind of like you're whistling. You're like, oh my god, what am I doing? Um, I think I think what's interesting about it is yes, there's all this craziness happening too, um, but like I said, the the melody really isn't that crazy very um uh structurally based on scales yep. kind of in a three note pattern especially that it, it's in like a, a piece like three especially like you know bum 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 first three notes yep bum 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 it's it's really nothing too crazy harmonically either but it does a really great job of balancing the harmony with the singularity versus the pure, the plural, the plurality. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a word, but like, the ver- <laughs> I, I just throw it out in the ether. Um, <laughs> it, it is because like we have this, this object versus these the subjects, you know? So I feel like there's all this material meshed in there and yet it's so interesting. And so, um, uh, very very beethoven which is like yes it is simple it is small but yet on the same side he's able to do so much with what val had addressed earlier in the first movement which was the dealing with orchestration and the smaller aspect of the development of the themes so i i find that really interesting i find that development of that really cool um again val the form really doesn't say that much um i wanted to i wanted to throw it over to you um where does his creativity pop into this third movement yeah you're right the form doesn't say so much um i think one of the reasons beethoven you know went down in history the way he did is because he knows how to be very intense and he also knows how to be very simple and because like for, for instance in this movement you look at the trio it's really really thinly scored and it's not that hard to go through and analyze and it's it's a lot more simple than this intense music that he also writes and i think that he knows when to do both you know and i think that for whatever reason this symphony called for a really simple section and he just knew what to do with it right and you'll you'll appreciate this val which is like a lot of people say who are your inspirations for for writing classical music? Like after Beethoven, we think of really great musicians. Who were their people that they looked up to? Mm-hmm. It was 
Beethoven, you know, Brahms would say like, you know, like I give everything to Beethoven because Beethoven founded everything. I don't really think Beethoven ever really did anything groundbreaking, but like because of the, the stature and the use of different kinds of motivic ideas and the ingeniousness of like certain phrases, I think that's what makes him so set apart from all these other composers because in their minds they're like, yes, Beethoven, he knows how to do certain things. He knows how to get the, the theme across, but yes, but like you were saying, the, the example between intense and simple is so important, and we start to see the intense parts in his longer movements, like one and four, right? Mm -hmm. uh, simple being the aspect of two and three, right? Where yeah. he's not saying very much, but he's getting a message across, you know? Yeah. And I think that's really important. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. That's funny about Brahms. I thought I read somewhere once, I could be wrong, but maybe maybe it was when I was in school. I had read something about Brahms. Is it true that critics at the time called his first symphony Beethoven Ten <laughs> for a while? In an, in a way, have you have you ever listened to Beethoven Ten? To Beethoven Ten. Yeah, there there's actually a there's actually a piece out there where I did a little bit of research on about Beethoven Ten, um, and I thought we I had brought it to class one day. It was like like my first year of my DMA. I had a class um on beethoven and i i said to my teacher because we were finishing up our talk on nine and i was like how about beethoven 10 and he goes now that's a really interesting conversation because yes the music is out there it exists he wrote he started to write it he just never finished it right but what's really interesting about it was he wrote the first two movements to it but never completed it so maybe on this podcast, maybe we'll have a little bit of discussion about the possibility of a Beethoven 10 and, and, the, and the determining factor of nine symphonies. You know, like a, a, a composer's life has to revolve around nine symphonies, not for Shostakovich's case, because he wrote almost like 20, 25 symphonies. But yeah, like, he beat the odds there. Right. No, yeah, he beat, he beat death in a lot of different ways. But like talking about like the transition of, of, a, of someone's life, you know, and I think that's what kind of also coincides with Beethoven, not to get off of the third movement, because, you know, <laughs> there isn't really that much to talk about with the third movement, but, like, within that, within that idea, like, we see the life that Beethoven led through all of his symphonies and, and value, right, where you see the, the way he travels from one thing to the next, and you're like, wow, he's, he's going from one thing to here to one thing to here to one thing to here. Um, and what... I think scholars find so much interesting about his life is the transition from one to nine and how that just, and that, that how that compositionally had made him such a great composer, you know? Yeah. And then I do also think a part of why he was so great is because he intended to be, you know, I don't think Beethoven. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Like I don't, there are some composers that were just doing their thing and then they were Bach, you know, but Beethoven, <laughs> he, <laughs> I don't think he was just plodding along, doing his thing, living his best prodigy life, and then took us into the romantic period. I think he fully intended right. to change the course of music and take us into the romantic period. And right. I think that that determination is also a lot of why. Right. Yeah. And I, I find that the transition into that is just so powerful and so mm -hmm. interesting. So I'm I'm so excited to, to talk about that. Um, but... Are we ready to talk about the fourth movement? Yes, I am ready to talk about the fourth movement. The fourth movement for me is one of the cooler movements because we return to the idea of musical jokes. Yep. And the idea of sentence versus structure. Um, uh, so here, here's what I mean. So I think what Beethoven thought was funny was a very succinct melody without any basis. Okay. Bum, ba -da -da -dum -bum. It's like it's like what? Okay. It's like for me that that opening section is a large question mark. Someone called it when I was doing the research and everything on on the fourth movement. Somebody called it a sneeze. <laughs> or like some kind of. A, <laughs> I thought that was yeah, very that. funny. That's awesome. Because I was That's... like, oh yeah, maybe he's just. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. 
Maybe it just takes him a really long time to sneeze. Maybe, Maybe that's what yeah. I'm thinking about. <laughs> that, yeah. But that's so funny too. Like the relationship that Beethoven had to to phrases to like the way that you know we we think about like developing certain musical ideas and stuff like that um versus like the idea that you know music has to be such a fluid thing you know right so in a way it feels pretty disjunct for me anyway the the melody what what do you think i yeah i i agree i think that this one stands out you know talk about like his third symphony maybe leading us into the romantic period in his next phase and everything um a lot of people have said and i i think i'd agree after really studying this the way that i have um that it's this movement that really is what led him into his second phase because i think this one stands out and i think it's a lot more romantic than the others you know i don't know if you'd agree right no i think i think it does too i feel like i feel like two is a really good stepping stone for three Mm -hmm. and that a lot of his melodic ideas don't really fit, but like three finds a way to fit in all those melodic ideas and develop a great sense of harmony too. Right. You know? So that's kind of where my head's at too. Um, and also the use of um, this theme of musical jokes. I find that that is kind of very prevalent in his earlier symphonies. You know, oh, yeah. we might we might not really hear that in his later symphonies, but like I feel like in a way when he started out, he's like, look at all these dummies like Haydn or Albrecht Singer or Mozart. Look what they're doing. This is so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> and, and guess what? I have to do it too. Oh yeah, especially like the second theme in this movement. It's it's just funny. It's very tongue in cheek. <laughs> it's very playful. It's very coy. It, you yeah. know, it is it is just a joke, and I think that. You know, knowing what we know about Beethoven and records of letters he wrote and, and what we could piece together about his personality, I think you're probably onto something there. Right. Yeah. And and what's so interesting about that too is is just the way that like this whole um movement is designed too. Like it the whole narrative is just it's it's totally just shifting its voice throughout and how like all this development is just changing. But that one singular melody finds its way every single time. But I'm, but I'm, and yep. all different kinds of various uh, tonal centers, you know. Oh yeah, for sure. I think so. In in every place. What's funny for me is he starts in D major, right? Mm. And then he like really just doesn't leave. He pretends to modulate a lot. And then yeah. he just stays in D. And that's very <laughs> unlike Beethoven because he likes to dance around all these keys. Right. And this time he just didn't. He he kinda he really just sits there and yeah. he pretends he's leaving, yeah. but he doesn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it's it's strange too. Like you think that maybe in the uh the secondary melody, the ba da 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 maybe he would do a little something else, but Yeah. But that second section is so different. But also, he really likes those. Like, I think if you if you can follow me, like if you can find page fifty three of the PDF document. Okay. One of the things that I'm noticing is the use of. See, oh yeah. Those really short random entrances probably really it's it's kind of like a. It's kind of like a, a, a sort of a figurative laugh, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. In a way, like it's kind of like a huh, 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 you know? So yeah. in a way, it's like a Beethoven laughing at certain lines. Yeah, and like a ha, 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 ha. I get, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. And then here we've got another very long coda that oh, ends. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And it's really funny because it's really playful. It's it's fun. It's coy. It's all of that. And then it ends, yeah. like, incredibly harsh. <laughs> and it's just it's just funny to me. And this I, this ending, I think, is more, you know, normal of him. 
but it's like it's coy and it's playful and we're skipping off to wherever we are and then all of a sudden he just bangs out the home key for yeah, what you, do you know what do you think about that relationship from D to C sharp in those last couple bars? It's so it's so like it's so graining, you know what I mean? It is. Very much. Yeah. <laughs> it feels a little unnecessary. It does, yeah. It does. And this is more what I'd expect of him, but it's just funny. It seems to come out of nowhere. It's like Yeah, it's it's like really fun, and then all of a sudden it's extremely harsh. And I think I was um reading that the early performances of this were critiqued for it and now of course we're we're like you know hundreds of years into right. the future now and so now we understand that it's kind of just be- what beethoven does but i think it was critiqued um and that's another reason that i think this movement of this symphony is probably what took us right. into the next period because you know audiences and whatever that they whatever they critique tends to become normal after a while <laughs> right 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 yeah notice like maybe in that same section notice how the 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 trill between the d and the c sharp um how right under all of that the tr- the trumpets and the and the horns go bum 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 <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep high about being- simple Hiding, hiding the like the one, you know, yeah. and and showing that you know you can do whatever you want to sort of play around with the harmonic to dominant relationship. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. Yeah, I think that's cool. Yeah, it's such a cool thing. And then and the laughing, the laughing stuff comes back. One of my favorite things about this section is uh, some of the some of the horn entrances are early by 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 accident you know but i feel like he he kind of writes them in on purposely and i'll give you sort of a i'll give you sort of a measure on that too just to sort of tell you that i'm not crazy um i uh let's see if i can oh yeah okay so if you can find the document page of 62 uh this is page 58 of the document sorry 62 document and 58 on the score um There's like this random, it's like this random like two note thing in the horns, and then but then it's kind of like this random entrance, and I like that for for some random reasons. I think that it's it's kind of like this, it's it's this really weak pickup that like lands really really hard, you know? Yeah, yeah. That I I feel it really works really well and adds to this sort of comedic part of this symphony in a way. Um, and what I really find interesting about this movement overall is the way that the form plays in this Rondo Sonata, where you, you never really know where it's going to go, and it, it waffles back and forth between this, this uh, fragmented melody, you know? Yeah. And what I also find really interesting is, like we talked about with the first movement, there is there's qualities of Beethoven, and then there's there's these quasi classical things that maybe he's commenting on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like in a way, he's making fun of the classical, but also like implementing his own musical style. You know? Yeah, and I I think what he's doing is he took so Symphony Number no. One and Symphony Number no. Two, he made like. A hundred years worth of progressions in two symphonies. Right. You know, because normally the progression is a lot slower of a composer. Their earlier works is more in tune with their predecessors. And then they come into their own at the end. But Beethoven did it in like two symphonies. Right. I find that ridiculous. I yeah. mean, the, the, the grandeur, like you said, like he learned how to write for clarinet overnight, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's, like, it, it's this whole thing of like, where is he going to go? What is he going to do next? You never really gonna you never really know, you know. So just uh, unbelievable and 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 just kind of kind of all over the place. Um, I, yeah. I really do appreciate. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just gonna say, and then especially when you consider his piano writing as well, which is so far ahead of its time, and it, right. it's even ahead of the symphonies. Like the symphonies are ahead of their time, but the piano stuff is really ahead of its time. And yeah. so it's just that's interesting to me too. I mean, I I just have to believe that's because the piano is a more comfortable area for him, 
And maybe you know, and yeah, and maybe in a way, the the music for the symphony is just limited, and maybe mm-hmm. that's the musical commentary that he wants to write about. Like he's saying that the symphony can be so much more. Yeah. Yes, but you don't always have to give trumpets one, three, five, three, <laughs> and 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 put uh put a measured trill on top of it with all really high voices. Um. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I think I think I think it is something there. And I think I think what's interesting about it is like we have this conversation about the symphony. And yes, the symphony is a classically modern piece of work mm-hmm. that people would want to just I mean, like we talked about this last time where the event of the day would be these classical concerts, you know, and people would go listen to them and, and be a part of them. And yeah. this then in, established the critic, you know, Um it's like history of the world part one, the, the invention of the critic. Um, <laughs> no, that's funny. I um, <laughs> but I, I think it's funny where like Beethoven is getting all this criticism and yet, you know, he's like, you know, I want to, but in a way, like maybe his first two symphonies don't get any credit because he's, he's, what I find so interesting about it, and Hunter and I did so much deep dive work on early Joe Hisashi and early John Williams mm-hmm. and, you know, some early Tchaikovsky. And these, and these composers never really found, it, found their voice until they found the relationship with the music, you know? Yeah. And in the sure. moments that, you know, we talked about tonight with in regard to his, his blindness, I think... I mean, he had this huge surgery on his eyeballs for God knows why. You know, or not eye. What am I talking about? Eyeballs, eyes <laughs> here, ears there. His his deafness. Oh my God. So, again, I, I apologize to the listener, but like, well, he Beethoven, was blind to his deafness. This <laughs> yeah. is just this is just yes, when he was. accepted it. So he was right. very blind to his deafness before right. that. And and he and and medical practitioners in the you know early. 18th century sorry late 18th centuries going into the early 19th centuries were not good y'all no they were terrible and yet no. beethoven was like i need this to be fixed i need to i need to figure out how to hear stuff i'm a musician you know like he's trying to figure all this stuff out um and yet it's terrible it gets worse it gets worse you know um yeah and one of my one of my favorite things is um have you ever seen mozart in the jungle I, I think I maybe watched. I'm not, I'm not the best with TV. But no, no, no. Watched, it's okay. It's okay. Well, I think I, I maybe watched one of them. I do know what it is, though. Yes. I'm 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 a I'm a cineophile, so it's just you know I watch whatever <laughs> I can. But the one thing that I noticed in 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 the show is that there's a moment where the composer, well, Beethoven, like this, the conductor has relationships with all these different kind of composers, and he's talking to Beethoven. And he's talking, he's, he's, he's using one of those crazy, like, ear horns, you know, that Beethoven uh-huh. used to just listen to stuff, you know, because Beethoven yeah. couldn't really hear anything. Um, and he's like, you know, you're going to go deaf, you know, you're going to feel all these motions and feelings and, and be like me, where you're going to lose all this stuff. And um, one of the things that I, I, I think that Beethoven really struggled with was his, his lack of, he, he never lost confidence in his writing. But he 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 felt like maybe he was losing his his judgment on what things sounded like. But in a way, he knew what he was writing. He knew what he was going after, you know. So one of my one of my favorite, maybe, and you can probably talk about this too, um, was there's also a movie out there about someone performing Beethoven's Fifth for the first time, in that Beethoven. Um, was rehearsing the fifth symphony with the orchestra and it just fell apart in the concert, I think too, you know, cause the, because the musicians were reading something extremely difficult and they couldn't yeah. even play through it. Right. But the, what I think that you and I are really trying to, to hit, you know, homers all the way through this podcast, which is he knows, he knows what he's doing. It's just that it's so subtle that we find the subtlety in his writing and yet the simplicity is coming out really well, you know? Uh, yeah, 
I do know. And I also think he was just ahead of its time. Like, it's easy for us in the year 2023 to look at his music and see it a certain way and go, well, obviously this is what he was doing. And he's just going from here to here. And and the technique's not that bad because we have really modern bass clarinet solo works now that are way harder and that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah. and, and I, I do know the story of the fifth falling apart and everything at the premiere. But he was way ahead of its time for the year that he was writing that in, you know? And so I think that also has a lot to do with it. Right, yeah. Well, Val, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Um, you for having me here. It's fun to nerd out with you guys whenever, you know, whoever I'm nerding out with, it's fun to nerd out. So we're excited to have you back. Um, Next week, really exciting topic. We got the Verity Requiem. Hunter is over the moon. He is jumping up and down. Unfortunately, he couldn't be here tonight, but he told me himself. He is extremely excited for this podcast. So my name, of course, is Sean Rakunas. Alongside me, as always, in my heart and in my mind, is Hunter Sagona and Mary Haddix. And I'm Valerie Nizzolo, and we'll see you next time when they look at Verdi's Requiem with Honey Florence. And keep listening to what you love.